All right, friends, today we are wrapping up a six-week sermon series called Our Work as the Church. And it's a reminder that every single one of us, first and foremost, is the church. You know, we often, we mistakenly think of church as a building or an hour on Sunday, but in actual fact, Scripture says that if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are the church. The Greek word is ekklesia, the called out ones. Jesus has called you out of the life that you were living for yourself into a marvelous light that is a relationship with him filled with purpose and joy and peace. And when you respond to that call, you get to be the church. That is your new identity in Christ. You've been given the spirit of God. You're adopted into God's family. And out of the overflow of that identity, every single one of us is called to do God's work. And yet, as I've said over the last number of weeks, stretching back to our vision series back earlier this year on the church at work, it is very tempting for us to outsource that work. You know, to, to think that it's somebody else's responsibility to do that work. We live in an outsourcing culture. And so we can think that, you know, it's that, that, that's the pastor's job. That's the elders of the church's job. That's, you know, that's a, a homeless shelter's job. Or that's, you know, that, that's, that's for the professionals. But in actual fact, what we've been exploring in this six-week series, what we've been reminded of is a work that every single one of us is called to in every area of our life, our private life, our public life, even our professional life. And if you've missed any of those sermons, I invite you to go to YouTube, for example, and get caught up on this sermon series. As a quick recap, every single one of us is called to do each of these six things, to proclaim the gospel that saves, to further the flourishing of society, to preserve the truth that frees, to cultivate the community of God, to maintain the life of worship. And as we get to today, to demonstrate the kingdom of heaven. And so what we're going to do is we're going to get into God's word and we're going to explore first what the kingdom of heaven is and practically what does it look like for us to demonstrate it in our lives. This is the work that God has called us to as followers of Jesus this is how we're going to grow as the church, a church that is defined by the reality of who Jesus is as we are sent out into this world. All right, the kingdom of heaven. I mean, what on earth is this, this language kingdom? You know, living here where I live, I know we have people who listen to these messages who join us from all over the world. Some of you might live in an actual kingdom. We live here in the United States in something very different than a kingdom. We, we refer to it as a democracy. And so even some of this ancient language, we don't quite experience the way that the first century followers of Jesus would understand. In the ancient world, and in the world today where there are monarchies, this sense of a kingdom is one in which there is sovereign rule and this experience of life within that kingdom is filled with a way of life, it is filled with values, it is, is filled with various things that are defined by the rule of the monarch. And there are kingdoms of this world that have risen up and have fallen down. You study the, the history of civilization and these kingdoms have come and they've gone. Some have lasted for, for centuries, even millennia. Some have lasted for 
just a few years. And as these kingdoms have come and gone, there is another kingdom that scripture says that is a kingdom above all kingdoms and is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom on which God is enthroned. And this miraculous truth is that when you look at the fullness of scripture from beginning to end, we get a sneak peek in the book of Genesis, what it is like to experience life within the kingdom of God, because heaven was here on earth. In other words, we were flourishing in our relationship with God, with each other, with ourselves, with all of creation. All was as God intended. And yet within that kingdom, as part of the family of God, we weren't servants, we weren't subjects. We were part of God's family, made in the image of God. We chose our way rather than God's way. And the experience of that, that kingdom was fractured. There was a, a ripping in two of heaven and earth, to say it that way. And we lacked the experience of God's reign and God's rule, the experience of being in right relationship with God. We lost the experience of the flourishing that comes as a member of the family of God, as part of royalty, and as we move throughout life, scripture says, we built our kingdoms. We made names for ourselves. And when the kingdoms of this world are confronted with other kingdoms of this world, there is always a clash. There are wars. There is the objectifying of the other. Uh, there is this sense of I'm right and you are wrong. And we have seen played out over the history of humanity, the brokenness that comes when we settle for the kingdoms of this world. But God loved us so much, scripture says, that he sent his son to live among us, fully God and yet fully human. And as he grew up, as he experienced all of life that we experienced, scripture says that he was tempted in every single way that we've been tempted. When he enters into his public ministry, he seemed to say this phrase again and again and again, this phrase of repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now we learned a number of months ago, the Greek word repent. It literally means to change your mind and to change direction. Basically what he's saying is uh, stop pursuing the kingdoms of this world. Stop finding your identity in the kingdoms of this world. Stop valuing what the kingdoms of this world value. For the kingdom of God is here and now. And it's important before we move on to acknowledge the fact that God doesn't say, hey, I want you to go to some far off place to experience the kingdom of heaven. No, he brings the kingdom of heaven to us, most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. And wherever Jesus went, you can read about it in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, wherever Jesus went, the kingdom of God was experienced. People witnessed with their eyes the supernatural, miraculous work of what happens when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords comes into this world. The blind were given sight. The, the lame were able to walk. The dead were raised to life. It was a complete reordering of societal divisions. 
wherever Jesus went, the, the kingdom of heaven was experienced. The, the, those on the margins were brought in. Those that were the center of society, puffed up with pride and arrogance, were humbled. And as people experienced the reign and rule of God in Jesus Christ, lives were transformed. Wherever he went, there was a deep joy, a deep hope, a deep peace that the world had never seen. And the powers that be thought that when they killed Jesus, that that kingdom was squashed, that kingdom was, was done with, that distraction was, was put aside so that their kingdoms could move on. But in actual fact, the kingdom of God planted a seed because Jesus defeated death. He burst forth from the tomb. He demonstrated that the power of God was more powerful even than the grave. And when Jesus, before he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he said to his followers, I want you to stay here in Bethany and I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit and you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they went. Once they received the Spirit of God to the ends of the earth, and I want you to catch this, that wherever Jesus was in the first century, that's where the kingdom of God was experienced. It was bound by space and time. It was limited to wherever he was physically able to walk, to talk, to live, and to love. If he was in Capernaum, the kingdom of God was experienced only in Capernaum, not in Bethesda. And when he went to Bethesda, the experience of the kingdom of God was experienced in Bethesda, but not in Capernaum. You see, it was limited to his physical presence. And yet the beauty of Jesus' sacrificial death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and the outpouring of the Spirit of God is now that you are now the body of Christ. And the experience of the kingdom of God isn't just limited to where Jesus physically was in the first century, but is expanded to where Jesus is in the present tense. Wherever you are right now, whether that's here in Los Angeles, whether that's somewhere else in the United States, whether that's in any of the various continents around the globe, regardless of what time zone you are in, if you've, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God longs for people to experience the kingdom of God through you. In fact, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, you are an ambassador for Christ. As it says in the book of Philippians that your citizenship, your citizenship is in heaven. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you actually, at least you're a dual citizen. You know, you're a citizen of whatever earthly uh, country or kingdom you're a part of. But before that, above that, primary to that is your citizenship of a heaven on which God is enthroned, on which God cannot be voted out, cannot be usurped, cannot be overthrown. That is the kingdom through which you receive power and peace and security and identity and a purpose. And so as we get through this sermon today, it is an invitation for you to catch the kingdom of heaven as a reality for you to experience right here and right now. 
And as we walk through this sermon, you're going to get to see how you can demonstrate the kingdom of heaven in your private life, in your public life, and in your professional life. And as we go through this, I want you to know that as Jesus went out and he lived and as he loved and as people witnessed and they saw with their eyes the experience of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus also taught. He also wrapped words and stories and parables around what they were experiencing to explain, to give definition to, to counteract wrong perspectives to, to be crystal clear for those that have the ears to hear and the eyes to see and the hearts that are open to understand what the kingdom of God is. In fact, there's this moment in Jesus' ministry where they ask, like, Jesus, why? Like, why do you keep teaching in parables? You know, parables, these stories that Jesus tells that when you read, you're like, what is this about? A mustard seed, yeast, sheep, goats, wheat, what, what, what is this? What, what is he talking about? I mean, if Jesus taught the way he taught back then, now, many people would be like, what are you? What? I mean, tell me what you're going to tell me. Then tell me and tell me what you told me is kind of what the modern world says that we should do as speakers. And yet Jesus, he told these stories, these parables, these, these fascinating things that resonate with their culture. As he talked about mountains, they perhaps could see a mountain. As they heard him talking about sheep, they perhaps could see sheep. As, as he talked about these agricultural things, they were, they were in the midst of an agrarian society. He was speaking to them at that level, helping them to unlock the mystery, the beauty, the present reality of the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Jesus, when asked that question, why do you teach in parables? He responds and he says this. This is in Mark chapter four. He says this in verse 11. He said to them in response to the question, why did you teach in parables? He says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of heaven. What? Basically, Jesus is saying, the reason why I teach in parables is to help you understand the kingdom of heaven. In fact, every single parable that Jesus teaches is about the kingdom. What life is like in that kingdom. Who the king is. Who we are within that kingdom and the values of the kingdom. In fact, every single parable, if we don't understand it through that lens, we can misunderstand, we can misapply, we can turn it into just principles for daily living so that I can just, you know, have a better life. It can all of a sudden become about just lifting up the kingdom of myself. And Jesus says, no, 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 let's get it, let's get it straight. Let's get it very clear. These stories are about the grandest story, the kingdom of God and your role within it. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through three different parables. And I want to invite you to see those parables, not just as a, a story to listen to, not just an intellectual exercise, but a way in which you can see your private life, your public life, and your professional life through. 
That as you hear each of these parables, you can begin to see in very practical terms what it looks like for you to demonstrate the kingdom of heaven in, again, your private life, your public life, and your professional life. All right, so let's first look through the lens of the parable of the sower. In fact, this is the parable that Jesus told that caused people to say, why do you, I mean, why do you teach in parables, Jesus? And he says, they're, they're all about the kingdom. Let me read this. This is uh, Mark chapter four, uh, beginning through in, in verse one. It's gonna go all the way to, to verse nine. They ask the question. He says, it's all about the kingdom of heaven. And then he explains what this parable is all about. He doesn't always do that. Sometimes he just says the parable and doesn't give an explanation. He does here. So this is Mark chapter four, again, beginning in verse one. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there. While the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, just picture that for a moment. He began to teach them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path and the birds, they came and they ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and it sprang up quickly since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30 and 60 and a hundredfold. And he said, let anyone with ears to hear, listen. People are like, what are you talking about? I mean, yes, there's crowds and yes, you're in a boat and we've heard stories and we've heard about the miracles. We've seen the miracles. A sower, seeds, path, birds, thorns. What, what on earth are you talking about? Again, that's when they ask the question, why do you teach in parables? And Jesus says, to you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But for those outside, everything comes in parables in order that they may indeed look but not perceive, may indeed listen but not understand, so that they may not turn against and be forgiven. In other words, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God isn't something that everybody notices at every moment of their life. It can exist in a powerful way and you might not even notice it. You can go throughout your life, maybe building up your own kingdom or serving a kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God can be right there under your nose and you can miss it. And Jesus then goes on to say, listen to this. Do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the other parables? This is the parable that unlocks all the parables. All the parables are about the kingdom of heaven. If we understand what the kingdom of heaven is, we need to understand parables. In order to understand parables, we need to understand this parable. And this parable is something that we can see is something that we have to demonstrate, that we have to allow God to cultivate in our private life. 
Here's how he explains this parable that unlocks all the parables, that unlocks the kingdom of heaven. Listen to this. Verse 14. The sower sows the word. He's connecting seeds to the very word of God. He said the story, and now he's giving the meaning of the story. He said, this story, if you understand it, unlocks all the other parables that will enable you to understand the kingdom of heaven, to live into it and to demonstrate it wherever you go. The sower sows the word. These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, this is about the word of God, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now, a lot of preachers, a lot of great theologians have tried to connect. What is this path that they're talking about? There's, there's so many great ways in which to understand this. You, you, you understand a path is one in which you travel along. A path is one in which you walk upon. A path is, is something that gets you from point A to point B. You don't live on the path. You don't dwell on the path. You don't rest for very long on the path. And I've heard many great preachers, many great theologians say that there are people who in a rush, they hear the word of God. And in their rush, there's not enough time between point A and point B, uh, between waking up and responding to all the emails and getting off to brunch. There's not enough time for that word of God to put down roots and God's enemy quickly can snatch it away. Now, I can imagine there are so many more layers and so many more meanings to what it means for the word of God to follow on the path. But for me, what a great way to be reminded that in my private life, I need not to be in such a rush to cram in reading God's word. I don't need to start my day and say, okay, I got so much to do. Well, I got I to cram in five minutes of Bible time. Because I might get through the passage, but that passage is not going to get through me. It's not going to put down roots. I'm going to forget what it was right into the first few minutes of going on to the next thing. And Jesus is saying, we must in our private life understand that there is a word that God wants to give us. And let us not live our lives as people on the path where Satan can just snatch it up as we go on rush with the rest of our life. But he goes on, he says, there's a second group of people. Verse 16, these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. It's good news. It's great news. I love this. I love that. But they have no root and endure only for a while. Then when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Rocky ground is one in which roots can't go down deep. They might get down just below the surface. And there is a temptation for us as we go through our life to just let the word of God just kind of like rest on us just in a very shallow way. Maybe the word of God is something we only hear when we gather in worship. Maybe the word of God is something that we only do maybe every once in a while when we, when we open it back up when we allow it to only sink down just below the surface, when the, the circumstances of life, the year we just experienced happen, there's no roots for God's word to ground us. And if we want to be people that demonstrate the kingdom of heaven, then in our private life, 
We need to be people who allow the word of God to sink down deeper than just below the surface. To say, God, search me and know me. I want to give you all of my life. Every area of my life you have access to. I want your word to read me. Not just for me to read your word. God, I want you to to help me understand what is true and false, the things that I value that I shouldn't value. Allow God's word to read you, to sink down deeper into your life. When you do this in your private life, you are actually, you're demonstrating the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus, there's, there's a third group of people. It's this. And others who, who when it is sown among the thorns, these are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word and it yields nothing. You see, a rocky ground and a ground filled with thorns are the two opposite ends of the spectrum. That rocky ground is one in which the, you know, the circumstances of life detract you from allowing God's word to sink down deep. But the thorns, Jesus says, that is the good things in life. These are the gifts that God has given you. But when you begin to, to worship the gift rather than the gift giver, when you, when you care more about the blessing than the blesser, then, then you get distracted. As Jesus says, the, the word of God is choked in your life, it's got no room to grow because there's too many great things to do, to experience, to purchase. And he yields nothing, but he says, but there's a fourth. There's a fourth category, it's this. These are the ones sown on the good soil. They hear the word, they accept it, and it bears fruit. 30 and 60 and 100 fold. This last category is God's longing for us. And I believe that God, as the good sower who longs to sow, to plant, to allow to take root, to grow, to bear fruit, the word of God in our life doesn't waste his time on just sowing seed into lives that don't have ever the capacity for it to grow down deep. If you are hearing this message right now, there is potential in your life to be the good soil in which the word of God sinks down deep. You don't have to be fearful. Like, oh, well, what if I'm just a path person or a rocky ground person or, or, or a person filled with thorns all around? No, no, no. You have an opportunity to choose in this moment to say, Spirit of God, let me be the good soil where God's word can put down roots to grow deep and high, to bear fruit, to yield a hundredfold for God's glory. The beginning of being a people who are ambassadors for Christ, who don't outsource this to other people, is to make the choice daily to demonstrate the kingdom of heaven by choosing to be the good soil. By letting God's word into your life, by soaking in it, by saturating your life in it. As my doctoral advisor, Leonard Sweet, used to say, the only way we can understand God's word is to, is to stand under it, to allow it to read us, to have authority over our life. And as we do so, we begin to understand that, 
There's a lot of confusing things, honestly, about this. There's things that that culturally are very different than ours. There's things about the use of literary technique that seems so removed. And it's important for us to, to ask for help, to read God's word in community, to spend time not alone, but the wise counsel of others, getting good books and good theologians and people in our life that we can ask questions to, to allow the, the seed of God's word to put down roots, to be this magnificent oak tree that bears the fruit of generations to come of people who are ambassadors for Christ. So friends, in this season ahead, if we're going to be the church at work, if we're going to be people that demonstrate the kingdom of heaven, let it begin in our private life. Perhaps this week is an exercise. You, you read this parable. You go to scripture and you start the day and you say, okay, God, I want to be that good soil May your word come down deep into my life. May it be something that yields great fruit for your glory. And as you do that, I'm telling you, if you begin to practice this on a daily basis, as the, the days turn into weeks and into months, this will begin to spill out into your life because you'll become so saturated in the word of God. As you begin to read other parables that Jesus says about the kingdom of heaven, you begin to realize that the kingdom of heaven isn't something for you just to experience in your private life, but the kingdom of heaven is something for you to experience and to demonstrate in your public life as well. You know, there's another famous parable. It comes in response to someone asking Jesus the question, who's my neighbor? And he tells a parable. And I believe that this parable helps us understand what it means for us to demonstrate the kingdom of heaven whenever we are in the public arena, whenever we are in relationship with other people, even if that's people in our household, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, whoever it might be. I'm going to go to this passage right now, this, this famous parable. This is found actually in Luke chapter 10. Again, it is a lawyer. He, he's, he's trying to test Jesus. In verse 25, he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? What you should do is what you read there. Verse 27, he answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to the Lord, You've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself. I love how Luke gives the motivation. Somehow he knows this of why he asked this next question. He doesn't ask the question so that he can learn. He doesn't ask the question so that he can grow. He doesn't ask this question so that he can be a follower of Jesus. He asked this question to justify himself as being the center of his universe, as being the Lord of which Jesus can confirm. And what does Jesus do? After he asks the question, who is my neighbor? That's the question he asked to justify himself. He says, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Verse 30, this famous parable, the lens through which I pray that we can see how we can demonstrate the kingdom of heaven in our public life. Jesus tells the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, who beat him, who then went away, leaving him 
half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he had come to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever you have more to spend. So Jesus, after telling this story, this parable, asks the lawyer who asked the question to justify himself, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This magnificent parable with so many layers to it, so many angles in which you can look at it. it reminds me that the kingdom of heaven is not this two-sided, removed, shallow thing, but it is something more than three-dimensional, more than four-dimensional. It is this brilliant experience of life as God intended. But I want to point out a couple of things in this, in this parable. And I pray that that reveals to us what it means for us to demonstrate the kingdom of heaven in our public realm. Again, why did Jesus tell this parable? Well, on one hand, to answer the question, who is my neighbor? But in a deeper way to reveal what the kingdom of heaven was all about. Remember, earlier on, we discovered Jesus says, I tell parables to let people know about the kingdom of heaven. So on one layer, he's answering a question. On a deeper layer, he's revealing what the kingdom of heaven is all about. And so this lawyer asked the question, who is my neighbor? In other words, who am I called to love as myself? Now let's get the pronouns right here. The lawyer is asking the question, who do I? Who am I called to love? Who is me and who is they? And in this parable, Jesus presents three different they's. Three different other people. Let's say it that way. The first is a priest. You think they're going to care for the person? Doesn't. You get introduced to a Levite. Wow. The Levitical priesthood comes from the Levite, that tribe. They're known as being, yeah, no, it's not them. Finally, a Samaritan is introduced. We have to understand that in the first century, this is someone who was looked down upon by the nation of Israel. This was somebody who was uh, ethnically different. This is somebody who worshiped differently. This was the very definition of the other. 
We're so removed by this because we live in a world where we use the phrase Good Samaritan. We, we have organizations called Samaritan's Purse. We have hospitals named after the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is the hero in our culture, but in the first century, the Samaritan was the enemy. And what's remarkable is that the hero of this story is the least likely person to the hearer of the story. And of course, Jesus asks the question at the very end of this, which one is the neighbor? To the man who fell, who was beaten, who was left for dead. And that lawyer couldn't even say it, the Samaritan. He couldn't even let that word touch his lips. He simply said, the one who showed him mercy. And of course, Jesus says, go and do likewise. In other words, go and do as the Samaritan did, not as the Levite did, not as the, the priest did. Go and do as the Samaritan did, who came near, who blessed, who loved, who cared for, who carried, who, who took them for care, who, who invested money and time and treasure into this, this person who was left for dead, who then came back, who was long time invested. It is very easy on one level to look at the story and say, I need to be like that person. I need to just be a person that shows up when there's people in need. I need to be somebody like that. And yes, that's an aspect of the story, but there's a deeper layer here that we can't miss. You see, again, to take a step back, a man asks, who is my neighbor? There's I, there's me, and there's them. Which one of them is my neighbor? Who am I called to love as myself? And when you take that question into the parable, you have to understand that Jesus, in telling the story, is placing the lawyer, the person who asked the question, into the story. But he doesn't place them into the story as the priest. He doesn't place them into the story as the Levite. And he doesn't place them in the story as the Samaritan. He places that man who asked that question on that day into the story as the one who was robbed, the one who was beaten, the one who was left for dead. Because when you think about it, he said, who am I called to love as my neighbor? And when Jesus at the end says, who is the neighbor? He doesn't say, who is you? He says, who is the neighbor? And before we can understand this parable, we must understand that God wants to extend love to you. That God wants to rescue you. That God wants to care for you, that God wants to heal you. And God often wants to choose the least likely person in your life to deliver that care, to deliver that love, to deliver that hope, to deliver that truth to you. This completely turns the parable up on its head. You see, we always want to be the hero of the story. But Jesus says, first, I want you to listen to who the neighbor that you're called to love and how they first loved 
you. And so to demonstrate the kingdom of heaven isn't to go out into this world thinking that you have all the resources, all the answers, all the love, and it is just your job to to demonstrate that to everybody else, to always be the rescuer. It is first and foremost to go into this world curious, expectant, open to God loving you, caring for you, encouraging you, blessing you, through perhaps the least likely person that you know. And I'm telling you, when you open your heart and your mind to that possibility, you begin to see people as God sees people. People made in the image of God, treasured by God. You stop seeing them through these earthly human categories where we belittle people, where we say, oh, that person, they're... they're, They're worth nothing. Nothing good's going to come from them. We begin to see them from a completely different point of view. And I wonder for you, who is your modern day Samaritan? Who is your modern day person or group of people whom you think would be the last people on the planet who would come to your rescue? You see, 2,000 years removed, we say good Samaritan because we've lived with this story for 2,000 years. This was harsh to the ears of that man on that day. Those, that, I can't even say his name. I can't even say Samaritan. It's the one who showed him mercy. Jesus makes the hero of the story the least likely person. And then he says, now you go and do likewise. As you reflect on that, I, I guarantee you, as you go out into this world, again, Life will look different. You won't look down upon, you know, the, the people who are bussing the table. You won't look down at the people who are, you know, cleaning your car. You won't look down upon the person who is in that, that service profession. You won't look down at people in your organization who are below you. You won't look down at people in power. You won't look down at your boss. You won't look down at those people, whether they're rich, whether they're poor. You won't look down at people who are on the other aisle, uh, end of the aisle in the political spectrum. You, you, you'll see people people from God's perspective. And you have this opportunity to see every single person as your neighbor that you were called to love as God loves you. Finally, Jesus invites us not just in our private life, not just in our public life, but also in our professional life to to demonstrate the kingdom of heaven. Uh, This is another one. It's short and sweet. It's one that isn't uh, taught on very much. And it's this remarkable parable of the the parable of uh, uh, two sons is referred to. This is in Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. And Jesus asks a question. Again, this is a parable. Again, all parables are about the kingdom of heaven. They must be understood through that very first parable. We can only understand through the power of God's word. In Matthew 21, verse 28, Jesus says this. What do you think? A man, he had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. Go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will go. But he never went. 
So Jesus asked the question, which of the two did the will of the Father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, are going into the kingdom ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him and even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. What's going on here? Jesus tells this parable, again, as a father who has two sons who receive the same invitation to go and do the work of the father. One says no and then eventually goes. One says yes, but never goes. And it is this opportunity to catch the vision, to not just be people who say, God, I'll do whatever you want. Yes, Lord, send me. Yes, God, you know, tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. But to be a people, even if we've had a past that has said no to God, even if we've had a past that has only done things for ourselves, even if we've been people who have never thought for a moment that a relationship with God through Jesus could ever be beyond my personal, private time, that we're called to be a people who actually, eventually come to God and say, you know what, let's get to work. What work do you have for me to do? Even if it took decades to get there, even if we went the wrong way in our life, the moment we turn and not just say, yes, I'll do it, but we begin to join God in the work that God longs to do, not in some future heavenly place, but right here, right now on earth, that is the person that begins to experience and demonstrate what it means for the kingdom of God to be at hand. Again, regardless of what your path, this is an opportunity for you to see in your professional life, no matter what you do, whether that's for money or not, whether that's a traditional job or not, whether that's the work that you do of raising up the next generation, whether that's the work you do of cleaning your home, whether that's the work that you do volunteering, regardless of what that work is, this is an opportunity to connect your work to God's work. And this is the vision of this church, to be a church at work. And it's not just to do each of these six things that we've talked about over these six weeks when we are gathered together, it is for us to be out into the world in our places of work as the church demonstrating the kingdom of heaven. So in the same way that in your private life, it spills out in your public life, what does it look like for you in your professional life to be a person who is guided, who is shaped by, who values, who has an identity in the kingdom of heaven over and above any of the kingdoms of this world. That as you go into that, you see yourself primarily as an ambassador for Christ. That as you go into that work setting, you see yourself first and foremost as someone who has been called by Jesus to that work, not just by the person who hired you. What would it look like for you to do everything that you do for Jesus? To see those moments in your work, whether it's Monday through Friday, throughout the week, throughout the year, whatever that looks like as being the very thing that God wants to demonstrate through you so that your coworkers and people that you meet would experience the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, when we take a step back, we realize that wherever Jesus was in the first century, that's where the kingdom of heaven was experienced. It could only be here where Jesus was and not over here where Jesus wasn't. But through his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension of the right hand of the Father, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, now the body of Christ is to the ends of the earth. And whenever people step up and say, Jesus, use me, send me, empower me through your spirit, that is where the body of Christ is right here today. There is work that God has for us to do until Jesus returns again to finish what he started. So friends, let's look for opportunities to demonstrate the kingdom of heaven in our private life, our public life, and our professional life through the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you've come to give us a vision of what you long for us, not just to experience for ourselves, but for the world to experience through us. The kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. May this be our yearning. May this be our longing. May this be the calling that we step into now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray and we say together, amen. As the church, we have a, a mission that Jesus invites us into. It's a mission not just to follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone, but it's to see how we get to contribute in that together. So I invite you in this season that you would prayerfully consider how you would participate in the life of this church, whether that's just through prayer, whether that's through volunteering of your time, whether that's giving of your finances. It is this invitation that we collectively would participate in being the church at work. There are many ways in which you can give, your time, your talent, and your treasure. And I invite you to go to our website to explore those things. And as we give financially in this moment, would you go to belair.org forward slash give and know that the ministry that we have for this church family is both on our physical campus, our digital campus. And as we step into the season together, we also have the opportunity to catch the vision of being the church at work. And we need to resource that vision above and beyond our normal operating costs. To find out all the information, how you can help us resource that vision, would you go to belair.org forward slash vision. And in the season ahead, may God bless us as a church family so that we would be a blessing to our neighbors, this city, and to the ends of the earth. May God bless you as you give.